So, welcome again. My name is Carol Marini. I am the archivist here and a reference librarian. And it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker. But first, I would like to acknowledge Josie Packard, who created the WASP cocktail this evening, especially for this event. Some of you here may remember the bicentini that she created for our, the Athenaeum's bicentennial. And some of you may even have these little coasters floating around your house with the recipe on the back. I keep this on my desk, but I've never made it yet in <laughs> my office. Um, or you may have seen her on the Rachel Maddow show making a flaming Christmas punch, which I did try at home, and it is not a good idea to try it without having a fire extinguisher. <laughs> and I'm very serious on that. And not in a bowl that your grandmother gave you. So, <laughs> but that didn't happen to me. I'm just saying, don't do that. <laughs> but it did light on fire, and the bowl broke, but nothing good. Anyway, also I would like to welcome uh, Chef Michael Zentner of the Aquitaine Group. Uh, which, if you haven't dined at, dined at uh, Aquitaine or the Gaslight in the South End or their other restaurants, uh, you're definitely missing out, and now you have plans for the weekend. Uh, tonight's menu is the product of their generous time and their expert skills. Our speaker this evening is Sarah Lohman. A historic gastronomist, she is the creator of the culinary blog Floor, excuse me, Four Pounds Flour which aims to rethink and recreate 18th and century American cuisine. Anytime you look at her blog, it's gonna make you hungry. And the one thing I did learn this week from her blog is that cannolis you can have for breakfast. <laughs> so it's historical, therefore it's healthy. Lohman also works with museums around the country to create public programming focused on food. Her historic recipes have been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and on NPR. Tonight, Loman will speak about black pepper's role in American cuisine based on the research that she performed for her book, Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine, which you all can now purchase for the hostess or host gift for your Thanksgiving. So thank you, and join me in welcoming Sarah. Hi, everybody. Hello. Uh, learning and eating and drinking, probably my most favorite combination of any three things that I could imagine, right? So uh, what is even better is that you're going to hear me talk uh, about this book that I have um, coming out. By the way, you are the first people to buy it. I know. This is a special pre-release um, selling and signing. No one else gets it until December 6th. So you are very, yeah, very, very special tonight. And I'm so thrilled to be here because this is my first time signing my first book. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. My, my mom will be very proud when I tell her. Um, and this has been a long journey for me. It takes uh, a long time to make a book like this with this level of research, and especially when you're doing it your first time. Maybe some of you have authored a book in this audience. There's a pretty big learning curve. And I'm so thrilled to talk about Black Pepper tonight because this was one of the inspiration points for this book, too. So what I write about 
is I try to define American cuisine through its eight most popular flavors. And I'm choosing ingredients that are not only, um, I feel, universally used by Americans, but also represent really big shifts in our culture over time. The book is laid out chronologically, and maybe uh, for some of you who already picked a copy up, you've pitched through it and taken a look at the eight flavors. But if you haven't, I'll reveal them for you now. Um, the first chapter is black pepper, and it's got a strong connection to Massachusetts, which I'll talk about, which is why I wanted to speak on it this evening. Number two is vanilla, then chili powder, then curry powder, soy sauce, garlic, monosodium glutamate, and sriracha. So a wide variety of ingredients that I make the argument can be used to describe our cuisine as much as you can talk about Italian cuisine, oh, which, by the way, I did an immersive experience this past week where I ate the diet of an Italian family for 19, from 1919, which is why I was eating cannolis for breakfast. <laughs> to be honest, I wouldn't recommend it. It was like way too much sugar first thing in the morning for me. Um, but the, each of these eight flavors can be used to define our cuisine, but also it helped me take a closer look at America and who we consider to be Americans. Because this is a book that's about women, it's about black people, it's about immigrants, and it's about refugees. These are people who are not normally written about in our history books, yet they are people who have shaped our country and our culture and the food on our dinner tables as much as any other person in this country. So that is the real message of this book. But my first chapter on black pepper, I think, also has a very powerful message and a message that's very appropriate for this country at this moment. The message of my first chapter is be nice. <laughs> and you'll see why. But first, I want to talk about this ingredient that is so common in our kitchens. How many of you have that like pepper mill, the special grinder in your kitchens by a show of hands? Yes. And how many of you had that special pepper mill in your kitchen 10 years ago? Significantly less hands. This is a major new trend. Not black pepper itself, but the way we're using it speaks back to how colonial Americans were using it as well. And I was first struck by the idea of black pepper and what it meant to Americans one very cold day in Brooklyn in February 2012, I believe now, where I tried to escape the cold in the tropical greenhouse of the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. And in this garden, one of the things I love about it is the plants they have, which are edible plants, plants whose products are common in our kitchens, but who I think we seldom stop to think about what these ingredients look like in their natural state. So that's where I want to begin with the black pepper plant. Cool to see, right? We never think about it. It is a vine. Uh, with these sort of uh, spearhead-shaped deep green leans. It's very, very lush. Um, it climbs up tree trunks, and it produces what are known as pepper spikes. These are these finger-like spikes, which actually are about the length of a finger, uh, which the berries grow on in an alternating pattern, just like you see there. When they first grow, they're tiny, tiny little blossoms that are a pale white-green color. And then if those blossoms are pollinated, they mature first from green green, uh, then to yellow, then to red. 
Here's what a black pepper farm looks like. Um, they can be grown in uh, wild, semi-wild conditions in the jungle, or this is a fairly um, sort of clean, very, like these are um, artificial posts that I'm put up as opposed to tree trunks. Um, black pepper can also be grown along with other crops too. There are plant, vanilla plantations that are now training black pepper vines up um, they're taking cacao trees, chocolate trees, they're training vanilla vines up them, and then they're training black pepper vines up them. So you can get three important products out of one farm. And especially because these three products often take several years to mature and have different growing and harvesting seasons, they can all complement each other too. Here's what the fruit looks like when it's ripening, and then if it's left on the vine to dry. That's not typical of the process now, but probably how it was used originally. And that original time is really before modern memory. Um, black pepper has been a part of cuisine since the Romans documented, but it evolved on the Malabar coast of India probably a couple hundred thousand years ago. And from India, it went to Indonesia, specifically Sumatra, and then Malaysia, again, long before anyone was there to write it down. So this is a very old plant, and it's been a part of food for a very, very long time. Now, from this one plant, we get actually four types of pepper, uh, black, green, uh, white, and red. And what type of pepper you get depends on when you harvest it and how you process it. Uh, green pepper are, is a fairly modern invention. These are unripe peppercorns like the ones you see there that are harvested and freeze-dried. As a peppercorn matures, it loses its piperin content. Piperin is the chemical that when you, you know, if you've gotten like a big chunk of black pepper in something, and we don't normally think about black pepper being spicy or hot, but man, when you get that chunk of pepper, suddenly you're coughing and sneezing, right? That's piperin. And the quantity, the percentage of that chemical is the highest when the pepper is green. So green peppers are often considered the less aromatic of the varieties, but the hottest. A uh, black peppercorn is made when the spike looks about like this one on the left here. Um, here, I'll use my fancy laser pointer, maybe. There. <laughs> it's harvested when about half of the berries on the spike are ripe, so it's somewhere in between being an aromatic and being a spicy fruit. Then at that point, it's cured and dried, and that's what we get in our kitchens for the most part, these dried uh, black peppercorns. Take one out of your pepper mill, take a close look at it. You'll see it looks like the berries here on this tree. Um, white peppercorns are harvested when the pepper spike is almost entirely red um, because white peppercorns are just the seed inside of this berry. Uh, it's, I call it a berry, actually technically it's a fruit. It has a, pulp, a husk, a pulpy scent outside, and then a seed in the center. Um, white pepper is actually slightly fermented. So it's harvested when it's red, and then these are contemporary methods of fermenting pepper, which still involves um, like putting it in a bog, essentially. And uh, exposing it to water lets it to ferment, which is why white pepper has a little bit of a funky bacterial quality to it, because it does. It has been fermented, uh, and the smell and the flavors, it's a little bit, it's a little bit like stinky feet, if you really give it a, give it a whiff. Um, after it's soaked in water, then the outside husk is rubbed off, and then you have this seed. And traditionally, it was used in white sauces and dishes, so the black pepper didn't discolor the look of that sauce. 
And then red pepper is actually something that we don't have here in America as far as a red peppercorn. In regions where peppercorns are grown, it's used as a condiment on the side of dishes, usually like with a curry. And you eat a little bit of your food, you scoop up a little bit of these ripe berries. They're only eaten fresh. You can get them pickled, but I have never seen those anywhere. And even an extensive search online has not revealed any sites that are shipping these pickled peppercorns to America. Now, I bet you're thinking, but wait a minute. I've gotten that four-color pepper grinder at the grocery store, and there's definitely something red in there. Well, all right, I'm not going to talk smack about those peppercorns, but they are actually not pepper. <gasps> I know. <laughs> you didn't know you'd be in for a scandal tonight, did you? So pink peppercorns are actually the fruit of an unrelated shrub called rather festively the Christmas berry or Florida holly. That's what it looks like and totally, totally different than a pepper plant. Um, this is actually an invasive species that has come from South America and now grows in people's backyards in Florida. Interestingly, when this ingredient first came out in the early 90s and chefs were going crazy for it, there was one vendor selling it uh, from the Canary Islands and he was selling it at a premium. And it was an ethnobotanist, someone who you look looks at the history of plants and, and human history that collected some of these berries, had them analyzed, I believe at the London Botanic Garden compared to the known samples, and that's when it was revealed that these were actually um, like a plant growing by the side of the road in Florida. <laughs> With no better quality than the premium shipments from the Canary Islands, so that really changed it. So uh, if you have that tricolor or four-color pepper grinder, take each of these berries out when you get home and give them a taste, and you'll notice these significant differences. Differences. And even though this berry is not pepper, um, it still has this wonderful pepper-like flavor that really rounds out um, that, that four pepper blend. So pepper is the first chapter in the book because this is something that was used really frequently by colonial Americans. We don't get our first cookbook in America until 1796, our first printed American, printed and written here cookbook, but we do have manuscripts from before that time. And one of the manuscripts we have belonged to Martha Washington, who is, who is pictured here. Her marriage to George Washington was actually her second marriage. In 1747, she was married to a man named Daniel Custis, and as a wedding present, her in-laws gave her a manuscript. This manuscript contained hand-copy recipes that date from the 14th century through the 18th century. So it lets us know uh, what not only what Americans, but what their English ancestors were cooking from the late medieval era into the colonial era. It's a very fascinating document that's been republished, so I encourage you to look into it. Um, a couple recipes, when I looked through her, her manuscript, really caught my eye. Um, one of them was one for pepper cakes. And um, I'm going to paraphrase the, the full name. It was actually pepper cakes that can be kept good in ye house for six months or a year. <laughs> So how could I not be intrigued by that? <laughs> this recipe was really like a fruitcake, although we would call it a cookie in the form that it was made. You rolled it out, you cut it. But you can see it has pieces of fruit. It had orange peel, lemon peel, had a lot of spice, ginger, coriander, and black pepper. Historically, uh, in the medieval era, black pepper was used with savory foods, but it was also used with sweet foods, like any other pepper, any other spice that was coming out of the Far East. Um, I did make these and I kept them in my house for six months to a year. <laughs> I checked them on, on them peri periodically. And after a year, they were disturbingly unperturbed by the passage of time. <laughs> I 
cannot imagine the motivation behind wanting to keep cakes in your house for a year with like fruitcake I can't understand, but I wasn't like pouring brandy over these. They were just lurking in the back of my pantry. Um, what's kind of fascinating to me about them is that they used almost as much ground spice as they did flour, um, which at the time would have been a real show of wealth and probably pretty desirable. But man, their flavor was strong <laughs> and the texture was off. So in the book, the very, I offer recipes as well in my book. And the very first recipe I offer is a modern recipe inspired by this idea of including black pepper in our cookies. So the holidays are coming up. It's a good one. I really, really enjoy the recipe. Another recipe that caught my eye is called to season a venison. Okay, another raise your hand question. Who learned in grade school or beyond that uh, spices were used in the Middle Ages to hide the taste of um, off meat, of bad meat? Me too, right? <laughs> Except when you start to break that down logically. Spices being imported from the Far East were extraordinarily expensive. They were only being used by the wealthy. So if you were that rich, what were you doing with spoiled meat? <laughs> You weren't. But I wouldn't call the, the legend entirely wrong. I think it was a misinterpretation. This recipe, which I also put in my book, is amazing. It takes a venison roast, and you put lemon peel under the skin and then crust it with salt and black pepper and butter. It's really, really, really good. Pepper, and one of the reasons that human like, humans like pepper, has antimicrobial qualities. In fact, many of the herbs and spices we use do. Jalapeno peppers and garlic kill 99.9% .9 of microbes they come in contact with. Pepper isn't such a heavy lifter, killing about 40 to 60%. But there was a big study done by Cornell that theorized that the reason um, spicy food comes from hot places and that in times before refrigeration, we were using a lot of spices, is that they were actually preserving these meats from spoilage by acting as antimicrobials. So you can see how that can sort of be misinterpreted over time as this is spoiled meat. Quite the opposite, though, it probably prevented spoilage. Um, this venison recipe is the great-grandfather of steak au poivre. Um, in the book, I also outline it, how it sort of descends from this medieval recipe into what Julia Child puts in Mastering the Art of French Cooking in the 1960s and becomes a French-American classic. But I'm not going to go into that today because our time is limited, and I want to talk about Massachusetts. So this isn't actually a, mass, uh, a map of Massachusetts. You can see in the corner that this is Sumatra. But Sumatra and Massachusetts were linked together in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Here's what happens. So if a colonial woman like Martha Washington wanted to cook with black pepper, she bought it at the store. But the store bought it from England. All of our commodities that couldn't be domestically produced and some that could be were bought through England. This is part of the reason we revolted because we hated this monopoly and the premium we had to pay for these ingredients coming through England. Not only that, but England often kept the source of its uh, imports secret so that it could maintain a monopoly on this trade. That stopped American merchants from getting on ships and, and going to wherever black pepper was coming from. Revolutionary War happened, now it's open, and we don't have access to these commodities that the English were selling us, and we don't know where they were coming from. So we had to learn how to establish our own trade routes, and that, interestingly, was happening in Salem, Massachusetts. 
Salem um, was a major seaport in the 18th century. And a lot of families there began making their fortunes as privateers during the Revolutionary War. Now, it's kind of interesting because Salem isn't a very good port. It's actually quite shallow. By the 1840s, things were coming directly to Boston, a much deeper harbor. But it just seems like the families up there were determined to make this a major trading center. And for about 100 years, they succeeded. So bully for them. In in the early 1790s, a, sh a ship captain was in Sumatra trading for spices, and he got essentially a hot tip that said that black pepper was grown on the northwestern coast of Sumatra. He came back to Salem, and he convinced a, a wealthy family to fund a journey for him to go to Sumatra and bring back, back black pepper. This is in 1795. Um, the Raja came back with black pepper um, shoveled into its hold like gravel. And black pepper at that time was worth more than its weight in gold because it was a very, very rare commodity. Now, the family that funded this mission, they wanted to keep the location secret like the British did. But someone let the cat out of the bag. Who knows how? I'm sure money was involved. And another merchant family named the Crown and Shield heard about it. Have you? Wait, I'm actually kind of curious now. So how do we know about the Crown and Shields? There's a house on the corner of Dartmouth and They do. So they had a house. And, and do you know what the house is famous for, other than being the Crown and Shields house? Across the street, they raised uh, the house across the street. was um, made on the fortune, not made on the fortune, but the family was made on the fortune of uh, Samoan, Sumatran, excuse me, Sumatran pepper. Exactly. The pepper trade produced some of the first millionaires in this country, and we're talking uh, 19th century money, not 21st century money. It's also interesting that Crown and Shield House is famous for, um, there's a very uh, reverend there who wrote a very gossipy journal in the early 19th century, and also H.P. Um, uh, Lovecraft set a story there once, too. And I also believe there was a murder there, so that house has been through a lot. <laughs> It's part of the Peabody Essex Museum, so you can actually take a tour of it and see the inside now. Um, and this is actually uh, George Crown and Shield, this, the patriarch of the family, his childhood home. Um, his kids, would have, which had a lot to do with the pepper trade, uh, we don't have their, their, their house. But then the grandkids, they grew up to serve in the, um, they're part of the American government. They become this very, very important and very wealthy family. Crown and Shield was kind of a grouchy, slovenly, mean, foul-mouthed sailor. That's how he started out. He started sailing at maybe the age of 11 or 12 years old, which was common in the middle of the 18th century. And uh, being at sea that young and that long, I think, kind of turned him into this guy. Let me give you an example. Uh, this account is from a family friend that joined George, um, his wife Mary Derby. The Derby's another big Massachusetts name. Um, and their children uh, at breakfast one morning. So um, a paragraph from my book. Crown and Shield and Mary Derby had a batch of children together, eight of whom survived infancy, six boys and two girls. Crown and Shield's time at sea left him rough in appearance and language, and by all accounts, he grew into a grouchy patriarch. A guest once recalled breakfast at the Crown and Shield house. Each of the children wanted something different to drink, tea, milk, water, hot chocolate, and so on. Irritated by his sons and daughters' individual requests, George asked the servant to bring a cup of each in a large bowl. He poured the drinks all together, stirred them up, and said, now, children, help yourselves. <laughs> oh, I can't imagine what it would have been like to have him to grow up with him as my dad. 
And what he expected of his sons is that they would go to sea. Some of them did so more successfully than others. So it was the crown and shields that got wind of where black pepper was grown. And it's the crown and shields that would become the family who um, really mastered the black pepper trade. In 1801, George sent his son John, who was 28 years old at the time, on the family's first expedition to Sumatra. He left on July 1st, 1801. He returned in less than a year, which was very, very, very quick. They were known as having very, very fast ships. Um, but what is really remarkable about, the, about this trip um, is that uh, we actually have his account of this of this journey. He kept a journal. Um, he didn't really talk about much about his stays at sea, but he did write quite a bit once he got to Sumatra. The gist of it is this. He shows up, he checks out a couple ports, he finds enough pepper at a fair price, but then he has to wait a couple weeks while the ship is being filled up with pepper. I'm going to read to you a couple quotes from this original journal, which... Um, really struck me. John tried two ports before he found enough pepper at a fair price, $8 for a picule. A picule is 133 pounds, and struck a deal. A handkerchief with filled with pepper and eight pieces of silver, kept sacred as proof of the bargain until all is finished, John wrote in his journal. He and his crew raided for weeks as thousands of pounds of dried pepper was loaded aboard. In the meantime, they hung out with the Akinese, these are the native peoples of Sumatra, of this region of Sumatra that was selling black pepper. Initially intimidated by the curved swords the men wore, John came to respect his trading partners. They treat us with the greatest politeness, he wrote. The people on shore are remarkably civil to us and behave in every respect with the greatest propriety. They are by no means a vicious set of people, quite the reverse. Now, if he sounds kind of astonished in these writings, it's because he is. This is the colonial era. This is like before xenophobia had a name for it. It was just like a way of life, right? So especially when you're dealing with native peoples in a far off land, it is unusual for uh, people to reflect and say, hey, these people are actually really nice. John goes on to say, um, well, when the deal was done, they got all the pepper, he shook hands, and he said that the reasons Americans had not traded largely with them before, the Akinese, was from the bad character we have heard of them. He suspected this information had been given by those whose interest it was to deceive with the view of keeping trade in their own hands, the British. They were very much surprised, John wrote, and they said they hoped I would not tell any such bad stories, that between two nations thinking so differently as we do, there always must be great misunderstanding. I told them I thought very favorably indeed of them. I think that that is something we can remember today. Because unfortunately, over 200 years later, we still often treat cultures that are foreign to us with fear and disrespect. So if a man of 200 years ago, who is leaving his country for the first time, can encounter a people so different from him, and those people can also treat him with the same respect, I think that we can probably do it too. And not only that, but John's attitude towards the Akinese people became the standard of trade with Sumatra, between Salem and Sumatra. John returned from that trip with thousands of pounds of pepper, which sold for nearly $200,000 in profit. The average man made a dollar a day in the same time period. So this is an extraordinary amount of money. So the subsequent traders that went and worked with the Akinese, who are still the people who grow black pepper in Sumatra, showed up and were nice to them. 
They respected them. They didn't steal. They didn't take advantage of their women. They paid a fair price for pepper. In fact, twice as much as what the British were paying. And because we paid a fair price for their labor, because we treated them nice, by the middle of the 19th century, the British were out of luck. We had stolen nearly 90% of the pepper trade away from them, and now we were monopolizing this trade because we were nice. It's a remarkable story and a powerful one, I think. Now, in the colonial era and in the 19th century, people were largely using ground pepper. No, excuse me. People were largely using whole peppercorns because they were harder to adulterate. Before 1906, we had no laws guiding what you could and could not put into your food. We had no laws against false advertising of your products, and we did not require ingredients to be put on labels. So if you bought ground pepper, you might get pepper. You might get pepper and the sweepings from the pepper warehouse floor, or ground olive pits, or simply toasted blackened breadcrumbs. After 1906, we passed a law called the Pure Food and Drug Act, which is the, the predecessor to the FDA. Um, the language that this law used and this idea of pure food became an advertising point. Um, McCormick's B brand, uh, excuse me, that's red pepper, their black pepper was advertised as being absolutely pure. Think of this idea of pure as being the organic um, of the late, early 20th century, late 19th century. So after this law was passed, we felt safer buying pre-ground pepper. And to be honest, people wanted to save labor in their kitchen any way that they could because cooking was such a laborious tax, task in the, end of the, in the end of the 19th century. But as we talked about, the way we're using pepper has changed. <laughs> you all know this guy right here. And what he's holding is a pepper mill hooked up to a drill, I guess, for your really intense pepper needs. In the mid-1990s, the Food Network launched, and over the next 10 years, the popularity of the Food Network corresponded to a spike in our consumption of black pepper in this country. Because when you tune into the Food Network, you're not seeing someone shaking ground pepper out of a pepper shaker. In fact, pre-ground pepper loses many of the aromatic chemicals that make pepper so delicious. They evaporate. The piperin sticks around, but that means you get a seasoning that is um, hot, but not necessarily spicy, aromatic, or flavorful. When you keep whole spices on hand and use them as you need them, that means you always have the best flavor. And that's what we saw the best cooks and chefs on the Food Network were doing. And in our effort to emulate these people in our own kitchens, a black pepper consumption skyrocketed, and so did purchasing the home pepper mill. Now even commercial companies like McCormick have uh, met the demand by releasing those little plastic pepper mills. Those are really a creation of the past 10 years, and that is now the sort of de facto thing as opposed to a pepper shaker you see on your dinner tables. So I want to step back for a second because I want to note um, the pepper grinders are by, um, I actually never know how to say this word, Peugeot. I took high school French too, and it's apparently not serving me well. Uh, much better known as car makers, but they released the first dedicated pepper mill in the 1880s, and they still make them to this day. They're considered the highest quality pepper mill on the market, and they're really, really beautiful. After they released them, there were a lot of knockoffs too, and I actually found references to them in holiday giving guides in the late 19th century as well. And then we have Alton Brown's version of the same thing. So let's talk about today. Um, 
Black pepper represents 10% of all spice sales in this country. It is the number one best-selling spice. So in a way, it was a no-brainer for me to put this in the book. We do consume it uh, equal to, if not more the most than other countries around the planet. We have a true love of this flavor. In fact, Americans consume 158 million pounds of black pepper every single year. Um, we're a country of 600 million, 300 million. Yeah, nice math. So every year we consume half a pound of pepper per person, which is, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty, pretty remarkable. So this to me is a quintessential American flavor. You are being served it in front of you. I say I never like to talk without being able to eat. We're trying to engage all these senses. But to me, it represented even more than that. As I learned the story behind black pepper, it is the story of us as a young country. And it is also the story of who we can be as long as we be nice. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. So feel free to begin munching because there are two more courses coming your way too. Um, but I'm also really happy to take any questions if you have them too. Yes, in the back. Is it party in a zone six? Is, say that again. Is it party in a zone six? Ooh, such a specific growing question. Um, yes. So I tried, and I outlined this in the book, um, to grow my own black pepper plant, because you can. There's actually a greenhouse in Delaware that will send you a cutting, and it'll show up in your house, at your house in a box, and it's really, really adorable. And uh, I potted it inside and grew it inside, and it grew pretty vigorously for about a year, and then, and then died. It even grew a couple pepper spikes, but I've read that it takes about three years for it to um, be able to fruit. So it was happiest in the summertime. I sent it to my, I sent it to summer at my parents' home in Ohio, and it sat there on a driveway and, and just grew luxurious foliage. So it's something I would only attempt again if I had access to a greenhouse. So if you've got a little greenhouse, whether it's in your backyard or um, on a porch, I would give it a shot. But it really is a tropical plant, and it really wants to be hot over 90 degrees every day and humid. And that's when it really does its best. Other questions, questions or um, thoughts? Anything that this uh, conversation sparked that you would like to share? then I am going to um, eat for a little while. But you're welcome to come up and chat with me, and uh, I'm happy to sign your books both in here, and then I'll be back out at the table out front too. So thank you so, so, so much. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Thanks, everybody.